everyone and welcome back to Poem Peeps. Firth, I'm so excited about a new year with Poem Peeps and glad to bring back a top consult series on pleural disease because this is such a common and important topic that I know that we encounter daily in both pulmonary and critical care medicine. Yeah, totally. I feel like this was actually the bulk of my pulmonary consult time and I absolutely love it. Um, we had our first episode on pleural disease and we talked about a general approach to pillar effusions with Mira John and Eileen Lynch from uh, University of Washington. And we're excited to delve into some of the more specific types of effusions uh, that we encounter and that we heard about briefly in that episode. And today we're going to be focusing on paranomonic effusions and empyema, super interesting and common topic that we see a lot. And we're joined by two absolutely amazing experts and educators in this area. So we'll just hop right in. Uh, first, we have Mihir Parikh. Mihir is, a cur is currently an assistant professor of medicine uh, and academic interventional pulmonologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He's a highly esteemed educator. He's worked to incorporate a lot of simulation training to improve procedural training for trainees and for general pulmonologists. He's also my absolute go-to for like anything plural or nodules. I feel like I email him. I think I emailed you last time about a like eight millimeter nodule, which is like pretty embarrassing in retrospect, but he's always very generous with his time. Uh, so it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today, Mir. Absolute pleasure to be here and always happy to field your emails, Dave, anytime. Thanks. And not make me feel bad about it. I appreciate it. <laughs> never, never. Excited to have you on, Mahir. And um, next, we have David feller Kotman, also known as DFK to many in the pulmonary critical care medicine world. So DFK is a professor of medicine and the section chief of pulmonary and critical care medicine at Dartmouth, whose clinical and research expertise span the field of interventional pulmonology. DFK is a true master of plural disease and has authored more than 225 peer-reviewed manuscripts and has been a leader for both ATS and chess committees. And I feel like DFK, when I was training under you when you were here at Hopkins, I definitely fielded some emails to you. And I still remember one time you just happened to be walking by an endo and I just happened to have a patient with a pneumothorax and you were quickly right by my side. So um, I definitely remember that experience and really just an honor to have both you and Mahir join us today. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure. I actually got the moniker DFK when I was back at BI, uh, where those guys are. Uh, so it's, it's stuck. So it, it really captures it. It's like the essence is here. And actually, you taught me my first thoracentesis. So this is like a real great turnaround for everybody. Yeah, right? The mantra, feel the rib. Yeah, exactly. So I'm really excited to get started. Before we do, just our quick disclaimer. As a reminder, this podcast is for medical education, not specific advice on specific patients. The views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. And if you hear about any cases, they're HIPAA compliant, we may have changed some details. Uh, but without further ado, let's hop in. Awesome, Firth. And as you mentioned earlier, we did have a general overview of how to approach a new plural effusion with both Mira and Elin from UW. But to remind everyone, we brought up two general types of effusions, one being non-inflammatory, um, which we consider to be more transudative, and the second one being inflammatory or exudative effusions. Today, we're going to be focusing on the, on the second one, the inflammatory or exudative effusions, which generally result from increased capillary permeability. And specifically, we'll be talking about two common exudates being perineumonic effusions and empyema. Mahir, I'm wondering if you can walk us through how you define these um, perineumonic effusions. You know, I know some people can hear complicated versus uncomplicated. It makes things more complicated, I think, when you hear it, and as well as empyema for our listeners today. Yeah, sure. Happy to jump in. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, different definitions out there, so it's good to try to be as specific as you can with it. I, I think take, 
taking a step back and, and thinking more globally about what we're talking about, we're talking about power mnemonic effusions. So effusions related to pneumonias. Um, and so the power process helps me think about it. Well, these are effusions in pleural spaces that are next to an infected parenchymal space. Uh, and so, and then, and then it's a spectrum of disease. And then that's why I think the definitions and the actual sort of terminology is hard to always pinpoint between an uncomplicated, a complicated paranormonic effusion and a, a frank empyema. It's a phase between sort of how the infection is being treated and developing in the lung. And then when it does ultimately spill out into the pleural space is sort of when you start things becoming more com- complicated. So I think of, a, of a, a simple or an uncomplicated paranormonic effusion as one in which the pleural space is still sterile, right? And so there isn't bacteria there that have spilled into the pleural space. And, and we're looking for evidence of that. And so these simple paranormonic or sterile or uncomplicated paranormonic effusions are radiographically simple, like they don't look loculated, they're not septated, and they're biochemically simple as well, too. So, you know, we don't think of some of the chemistry abnormalities that we're going to talk about in complicated paranormonic effusions uh, yet. Once they've become complicated paranormonic effusions, now now the infection is actually spilled into the pleural space. And so we're looking for either radiographic evidence of that or biochemical evidence of that. And so radiographically, things that we see are, you know, what I mentioned, loculations, septations. Uh, these aren't these simple anechoic effusions anymore. And then they can become complicated by biochemical analysis too. So again, looking for evidence of bacterial infection in the pleural space, you know, things like a low glucose, uh, a low pH, and then an elevated uh, LDH are all signs that these have become parano- complicated paranormonic effusions. So some cutoffs that I think about, like a pH less than 7.2, a glucose less than 50, uh, an LDH greater than 1,000, sort of meet criteria for a complicated paranormonic effusion. And then an empyema, I think, is is not is more of almost a sort of a, a gross term, right? Now now there's frank pus in the pleural space. And so that, that's, you, you, can, you can see it when you drain it. You can smell it when you drain it. Uh, and, and there are other, you know, markers that we look for too. So certainly like something that's gram stain positive, that's evidence that there's pus in the pleural space. And I think that, that makes it a true empyema. Thanks, Mahir. So that was really great, um, the way that you described that and, you know, able to see a sterile pleural space and then looking for any compromise based on either radiographic or chemistries. And I'm wondering, you know, when just thinking about people who can be impacted, um, are there any primary risk factors for paranormonic effusions that you think are important for learners to be aware of? Yeah, I, I think about it in the sense like we were talking about before, that these are effusions or uh, Pleural effusions are developed next to a pneumonia. So whatever is going to put a patient at risk for pneumonia is going to put them at risk for paranormonic effusions, potentially. Uh, and so, you know, I, I had a great attending uh, in residency whose, whose mantra was all, all pneumonias are aspiration pneumonias. And so I think, you know, that that's something to consider for sure. If you have patients at high risk for aspiration, either because of age or, you know, neurocognitive issues, you know, concomitant drug or alcohol use, those are things that I'm going to worry more about paranormonic effusions than by most developing. You know, other things that we commonly think of uh, that can also predispose patients to pneumonias are things like older age, poor dentition, malnutrition, immunosuppression as well. Uh, those are things that I think of when I think of risk factors for not just pneumonia, but paranormonic effusions. Yeah, um, the only thing that I would add to that would be that many times, especially in the elderly population, they don't present like you and I might present, or I don't, I'm including myself in the non-elderly. But um, you know, the classic teaching is that 
patients present with signs of pneumonia, fever, cough, sputum, and then vampyema of chest pain. But the elderly don't. Uh, they present often with anemia and weight loss. And because of that, their diagnosis is delayed. The paranormal confusion, which can start out simple, becomes more complicated. There's data to suggest they have a higher failure rate of non-surgical. Thanks for pointing that out. I feel like that is, uh, I've seen a couple patients like that who presented sort of this like occult, almost bee symptom type way. And people don't think about it that quick just because of the way you said the classic teaching we've always learned is this sort of rip roaring pneumonia sepsis type picture. Uh, I want to, Dave, yeah, I'm hoping I can go back to you as well. I mean, here already mentioned a few things on imaging for these patients. And I think imaging is just so important for all plural processes. And, and I feel like the biggest imaging modalities we talk about are sort of chest x-ray, uh, ultrasound, and CT. So I'm hoping you can talk to us a little bit about what features you're looking for on those modalities and sort of what's your favorite modality? Like if you have one of those, what are you picking to look for? And, and what are you looking for that says, hey, this is something I'm really worried about. Uh, I think this could be an MPIE more complex paranormal fusion or something that's more reassuring. Yeah, sure. So for me, ultrasound is the uh, really gold standard. It's able to be brought to the bedside. You could repeat ultrasound exams such that if you have a patient who um, is presenting with signs or symptoms of paranormal confusion and pyema, and you ultrasound them, but let's say they're on heparin for whatever reason, you could come back and ultrasound and see the progression or a resolution on ultrasound quite easily. Things that we look for would be hyperechoic confusion uh, and septations, as um, here suggested. You could sometimes see what's called a plankton sign, which is just little dots. Sometimes you could actually see air in the plural space um, that you would see as bubbles on a CAT scan. Uh, chest x-ray is something that almost everybody gets. We I can't remember the last time I actually saw a lateral decubitus chest x-ray, but that's the way we used to look for effusions that you could safely tap. But with the portability and availability of ultrasound, um, that's really the gold standard. In terms of CAT scan, CAT scan can be super helpful because it has the ability to image the underlying lung. Um, it could give you a circumferential view of the pleura. Um, it's really differentiating lung abscess versus uh, pleural collection, which can sometimes be tough to do just on a standard radiograph, especially with the use of what's called tissue contrast imaging, where the, the IV bolus is put in about 90 seconds later, then you get your imaging. And that's, that's super good for looking at things like the split pleural sign, uh, which is very, very suggestive of pleural infection. And you also want to look for Again, gas in the pleural space, you could see attenuation of the subcostal fat. Uh, we want to look for things other than pleural infection. Lung masses that could have cavitated, ruptured bullet, glands, all that. Could this be a malignancy with also a post-obstructive pneumonia? So a CAT scan is quite helpful as well. Oh, I have two quick follow-ups for you. One is, could you just describe for our listeners what the split pleural sign is, what they're looking for when they see that? Yeah, so what you're looking for ideally, and you could sometimes see this on a non-contrast CT, but the, the tissue um, phase contrast bolus is super helpful because it would really light it up. Uh, what you see is enhancement of both the parietal and the visceral pleura. Um, you don't necessarily see much activity in the pleural fluid collection, uh, but the parietal and visceral pleural will enhance and sort of split away from each other, hence the name. 
Yeah, that's great. That's super intuitive. And then, and my other quick follow up question is, I mean, these are all great things that we can look for. And we talked a lot about some of our case files episodes about the diagnostics and how they change stuff. And these are all sort of like positive predictive value things. If you don't see those things, like how confident are you that it's not uh, complex effusion or is the lack of imaging signs super helpful or not that helpful in deciding this is not going to be a bad portal space? Right. So clearly, if you're not seeing fluid, uh, and we, we see this all the time, then there's no paranormal effusion right by email. So we're often called up, for example, in patients who are who have had cardiac surgery because uh, the x-ray, the portable radiograph shows an opacity on the left side that's obscuring the diaphragm, and it's not fluid. It's an elevated or paralyzed heavy diaphragm. So I think making sure that you're not sticking a needle into the spleen or the liver is an important thing. And that's another big feature of the ultrasound. That being said, the classic teaching is that if you have a hypoechoic effusion on ultrasound, that could be a transidate or an exudate, whereas a hyperechoic effusion on ultrasound is typically an exudate. Once I start seeing septations, you know, that is where the fluid is becoming more complicated. And that will get into your treatment decision algorithm, uh, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later. One of the caveats, though, um, and this was um, nicely illustrated by Naj Raman at Oxford, he has this great picture of a multiloculated plural space, and he actually put a needle under real-time ultrasound guidance into two of these locules. One of the locules had a pH of 7.4. The other locule right next door had a pH of 6.9. So just because you know, you're seeing a multiloculated space and your pleural fluid analysis might be consistent with one thing or the other, you have to understand that locules are separate spaces and you could have different processes going on right next to each other. Thanks so much, GFK. And I definitely remember teaching Pearl from you from a few years ago that I still try to pass on to, to trainees currently. I think it was just really helpful to think about how initial imaging can impact diagnostic as well as management approach. Uh, and Mahir, I'm wondering, though, if you can discuss, you know, your initial approach to drainage of suspected paradigmonic effusion. Are you going straight to Thora? Are you going to chest tube? And what other studies do you think are useful to send? It's a tough one sometimes because there's, there's almost like a catch-22 in, in sort of if you read the guidelines for, for how to manage these. Because, you know, the, the guidelines will say for a simple paradigmonic effusion, you could just monitor but the catch-22 is the only reason you would know that if it's simple is if you've actually drained it and sent off the plural studies. And, and to what DFK was talking about beforehand, sometimes you can be fooled. And, and, and these effusions, even though they look simple radiographically, may be quite complex when you actually send off the fluid analysis. So I have a pretty low threshold to perform some sort of plural intervention in these patients. Um, and, and, you know, and with that, I, I tend to place a small, smaller medium board pigtail in these patients because while you could get away with the thoracentesis, you know, if you do find yourself in a situation where you drain the fluid off after a thora and then the pH comes back at 7.1 something, then you potentially are subjecting to a patient to yet another procedure because you are now mandated to completely evacuate the pleural space. And you may not have done that, but just a simple thoracentesis. So I, I have a pretty low threshold to place. a usually place pigtail catheters. A 14 French catheter is sort of our workhorse here at our institution. And that seems to be a, a, a good first step in figuring out what's going on with these patients because it allows drainage for the effusion, allows you to send off your fluid studies, and then it, if further interventions are required, you know, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit in terms of 
and somatic therapy, then you can administer that via your pigtail, which is already in position. Um, so I, I tend to, you know, I think we have some good evidence now to suggest that the smaller medium bore chest tubes are just as good as a larger bore chest tube without, you know, subjecting patients to pain and discomfort, which the larger bore chest tubes certainly do. So that's why I, I tend to favor the, the 14 French pigtails. Uh, in terms of what we send off, you know, we, we send off sort of the, the standard plural fluid studies. Um, definitely a cell count differential. I, I don't know if we mentioned these, but the, this, but these paranemonic effusions tend to be neutrophilic exudates, and so that's why the cell count differential is really important. And then we'll send off the chemistry, some of which we've already talked about, like the glucose, the total protein, uh, the pH, the LDH. And we also send off a pleural fluid cholesterol because we, we tend to use something called the three test rule, which which helps us distinguish exudates and transudates sometimes more easily than the traditional lights criteria we may have learned in med school. Always want to send off culture and gram stain as well, too, because, you know, the presence of a positive gram stain will define this as an empyema, but also will help guide antibiotic therapy in the future, especially if your cultures continue to turn positive. And then I always send off a cytology specimen just as a, you know, just in case, because sometimes it looks like a paranemonic effusion when in fact you're dealing with something completely unrelated like a malignancy. And so it's good to send off something for cytology as well. And then here before we go on, I just want to, because uh, this may be something that some of our listeners don't know about. So the three test rule you're talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm going off it, so I, I could be off. But that's, you're looking at pleural fluid protein, pleural fluid cholesterol, pleural fluid LDH. I think the cutoffs are protein 2.9, cholesterol 45, and LDH 0.45 uh, above the upper limit of normal or, or within that. 0.45 of the upper limit normal. And the advantage is you, know, you don't have to get blood at the same time, right? You can just use the pleural fluid studies. Is that the, what our listeners should take away? That's correct. You don't need to compare to a simultaneous serum assessment of these assays. And so you can just use the pleural fluid studies. And and, and there's good evidence that suggests that it, it has similar sort of diagnostic profile or performance compared to lights criteria in distinguishing transidase and exudates. The other thing that I would add to that would be to, if you can, send fluid off in blood culture bottles. Uh, this isn't something that all hospitals do, and it took about five years for us at Hopkins to get that done. The, the beautiful thing at Dartmouth is that our micro lab director was working at Hopkins when we were doing that project. So my hope is it's not going to take five years here. But there, there's decent data. There's a paper from Menzies and Thorax and 2011, showing a 20% increase in yield. So without blood culture bottles, the yield from pleural fluid is generally about you know 38%, and that goes up to 58% by sending it in blood culture bottles. Thanks so much, DFK, for that teaching pearl as well. And Mahir, I know some of the studies that you mentioned earlier that you typically send um, include pH, glucose, cholesterol, gram stain, LDH. And I know some of these will come back within minutes to hours. And I'm just wondering if you know of any literature or evidence that shows that if any of these results are associated with the poor prognosis uh, when thinking about your patient. I think if you're catching them at the point that they've developed a frank empyema, that is a, that's a pretty poor prognostic indicator, I think. And, and when we talk about poor prognosis, you know, we're, we, I think DFK mentioned this beforehand, but we're really looking at you know, whether or not these patients are going to need surgical intervention or not to, come, to definitively address their pleural space. And so once you've gotten to the empyema phase, you're in sort of the organizing phase of this infection, and it's going to be hard to manage these medically um, without things like VATS and decortication being in their future. You know, I think some of the other characteristics that have been shown to be associated with poorer outcomes, you know, there's now like this uh, almost like a TNM scoring system for pleural fluid analysis that's come out from the ACCP that's helpful. 
uh, to distinguish sort of the categories of, of prognosis. And, and some of them that are, that are associated with a, a worsening prognosis are things like a, a really low glucose and a positive gram stain as well. The BTS guidelines that will be coming out, hopefully within the next couple of months, really place an emphasis on the role of pH as a predictor of outcome uh, for pleural infection, with the caveat that pH is the easiest test to ruin. Uh, so if you have lidocaine in your syringe, um, if you have a heparinized syringe, that's going to drop your pH. Um, air in the syringe or delay in running the um, sample will increase the pH. So if you're going to do it, you got to send it correctly. You know, everyone's going to be very eager to go to management because it's such an interesting topic and we've already sort of alluded to it a few times. Uh, but Mahir started to talk about, you know, sort of the stages of this and, uh, you know, Hussein was organizing. DFK, I was hoping you could talk us through this a little bit and, and then also to know, like, is this something we use clinically or is this something that's sort of a little bit academic that people have described? Um, I've read sort of about like exudative, uh, fibropurulent, fibroblastic stages of a pleural fusion and the development of the infection. Um, but I'm curious to hear if you could talk through that and how that impacts your approach to these patients. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, th I think for the most part, it's academic, although uh, we had a paper where Udit Chato is the lead author, where we're, we're um, in Lancet Respiratory Medicine in 21, where we made some recommendations on enzymatic therapy. And one of the recommendations did come down to this, the staging of empyema. Where it's, where it's purely exudative, you know, let's say you have a hypoechoic effusion in a patient with a pneumonia. You do the thoracentesis, your goal is to drain it all. As it comes back with bad chemistries and you've drained all the fluid, you don't necessarily need to put a tube in. But I, I agree with Dr. Freak in that if it on ultrasound looks like it could be more complicated, the pigtail or surgery is the way to go, but you don't know that until you sample the fluid. So if on ultrasound it's looking perhaps like it's more in the fibrinopurulin stage, um, that's where you're in chest tube versus surgery. If the patient has had these symptoms for a while, and you often see this again in the elderly, uh, where you're doing your ultrasound and you see a thick rind on the visceral pleura, you know, that's a patient who might need a decor. We could consider enzymatic therapy, TPA DNAs for patients either in the exudative phase or stage two, the fibrinopurulin stage. But in patients with stage three, you may want to consider surgery first, be it medical thoracoscopy or surgical thoracoscopy, um, and then followed by enzymatic therapy. So we don't have the answer to that yet. This was a sort of um, expert opinion-based piece as opposed to an evidence-based medicine piece. Um, I think the key is that you could go from exudative, free-flowing pleural effusion to fibrinopurulent multiple oculations in a day. Uh, so, you know, that, that could happen overnight. And, and that's where that adage, never let the sunset on a pleural effusion comes from. That's the, the state, famous Steve Sonrich light paper. Thanks, DFK. I know that everyone is, um, as Firf said, you know, what, it's like, what do we do now? We have, we know that we have a paraneumonic effusion based on pleural studies or, you know, the presence of visible pus, as Mahir uh, mentioned earlier. So, you know, drainage of the infected fluid is key along with antibiotics. 
as you just said, though, DFK, I've seen some cases where, you know, that span, you know, minimally invasive, you know, a single thoracentesis may work to more invasive surgical decortication. So we'll be spending some time going through each of these as well as reviewing some of the literature that supports our decisions. You know, I think I've only seen it a handful of times, um, both DFK and here, you may have seen it more, but, you know, times when a thoracentesis drains the fluid um, completely and further procedural intervention may not be needed, but I know oftentimes additional interventions are required. And we've talked about this a little bit um, already in chest tube or tube thoracostomy. But for our listeners, you know, I, DFK, I wanted to see if you can comment specifically on what size tubes do you typically place for pleural drainage? And when placing the tube, you know, how long do you usually tell the patient that the tube needs to be in for and, and kind of further management with that? Yeah, I'm going to even back up a step because you you, you did mention antibiotics and, and we've got to use the right antibiotics, right? So uh, community-acquired antibiotics is typically strep species, Milleri, strep pneumoniae, whereas hospital and nursing home acquired empyema are the enteric gramnig of rosinorsa. So you've got to use the right antibiotics. In terms of tube size, um, as, as Mahir alluded to, we have good data from the MIST-1 trial suggesting that small bore is as effective as larger bore tubes and also associated with less pain on insertion, less pain while the tube is in. So now the question is, well, how small do you go? I agree in full with me here. Our go-to tube is the 14 French. Um, they come in from a variety of manufacturers. The beautiful thing about it is the incremental invasiveness of a 14 French tube over an eight French thoracentesis catheter is, is really millimeters, it's tiny. These tubes come with a stopcock, so if you do need to instill enzymatic therapy or even saline, you could do it. They tend not to get blocked. However, part of our protocol, and I think the outcoming guidelines would be that if you are using a small board of tubes, these get flushed to the patient every shift or every eight hours with sterile saline just to make sure that they keep patent. A lot of the smaller bore tubes, the 10 French, sometimes the 12 French, don't come with that stopcock. So you gotta open up the system as a bee to put in a stopcock if you're gonna flush. And then they are small such that really thick viscous pus might be hard to drain. There's probably not a right answer to this. You know, if, if a trainee is putting in the chest tube, you know, for someone with the first time or, or you're doing it in a patient and the patient I know will commonly ask, how long does this need to stay in for? What's your typical response? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really a crystal, crystal ball question. Um, it depends on what happens with the fluid. So if the fluid output improves and the patient's clinically better, then the tube can come out. Um, we typically will remove a tube for pleural infection when drainage less than 100, 150 mLs in 24 hours. That being said, in the MIST-2 trial, with which compared uh, TPA versus DNAs versus combination versus placebo, the average hospital length of stay was 12 days, which might be fine in the UK, but Americans like to get out of the hospital. Too. Uh, you know, go, going back even to the ultrasound, if I have a patient who's a great surgical candidate and I do the ultrasound and they they're coming in with fever cough sputum and you know I do the ultrasound and it's multi-loculated infusion even before me putting a tube in I'll often call my surgeon and tell them about the patient and sometimes they'll say have they eaten right because you could go in and do definitive surgery and the patient will be home in three days um, sometimes you know if it's a Friday they say just put a 
small bore tube and do TPA DNAs and then we could consider doing surgery on Monday. Uh, but, but that's probably your next question or something like that. So we, we don't know how long the tube is going to stay in, but I would say at least probably three days. Yeah, it's great advice. Probably always good to overestimate as opposed to underestimate. <laughs> then you can always deliver a little bit early. Here, I, I want to expand a little bit. We've referenced these missed one and missed two. I love like a really great trial where we don't have to have 20 of them that debate. We just go to these ones that really show some great findings. And we talked about doing intrapleural TPA, intrapleural Dornase, and how they're compared and used now in combination most commonly. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how these work to help facilitate the drainage? And then uh, based on that MIST-2 trial, like how often are you using them? Uh, and in which patients are you deciding to instill these therapies into the portal space? Yeah, we can start with the studies first because I think it's a good way to lead into the discussion. So the, the missed one, which you know DFK already mentioned, was a UK-based uh, UK randomized controlled trial of fibrinolytic therapy alone. So that was streptokinase, uh, and and that actually found no benefit, uh, no benefit in mortality, no benefit in other outcomes like surgical referral and, and hospital length of stay. Uh, and so that's where MIS2 came from. And this, I, I picked this up from DFK, actually, where, where fibrinolytic therapy in its current way that we use it is actually a misnomer because it, we, it's not just the fibrinolytic. We, we certainly use TPA, but we've added now DNAs to that. So I think it's much better, as DFK has been mentioning, referred to as enzymatic therapy for complicated pyrimidocusions and empyemas. And, and the MIS2 study looked at the combination of TPAs and DNAs in patients with complicated pyrimidocusions effusions and empyemas and found that there was a benefit. Uh, their primary outcome was radiographic improvement of the effusion, and they found that there was you know, significant improvement with the combination therapy. Uh, and they also found additional benefits with reduced surgical referrals and improved length of stay. So it was a positive study. And so, and, and so with that, then you know, I think most centers will, will follow that you know, MIS-2 protocol of using the combination TPA, uh, which is, you know, you know, fibrinolytic, and then as well as DNAs, which which helps to reduce sort of like that the cellular debris, all that nucleic acid debris from all the leukocyte degradation in the infected pleural space, to reduce the viscosity and then thin out the fluid uh, and, and improve your outcomes. Um, in the studies, in the MIS two studies, the way that they did it was a, a six dose regimen, so it was BID for three days, and everybody got that. Um, we we at the BI tend to sort of alter that a little bit, sort of modify it because. Uh, you know, what we do is we give them a dose and then we just repeat some of our assays. So we repeat an x-ray, repeat a bedside ultrasound to see if we've achieved our desired effect, which is pleural evacuation. And if we feel confident that we've evacuated the pleural space, we, we don't feel compelled to give additional enzymatic therapy to those patients. Um, but for others, we'll continue to, to give that um, until we have completely evacuated the pleural space. And I think, you know, I think we've started to talk about surgical interventions, but a lot of this is, is best done in, in sort of a multidisciplinary way and talking to the surgeons. You know, as DFK already mentioned, there are some patients that probably would benefit from a mar oral, an earlier surgical referral before, you know, committing to like the whole protocol of TPA and DNAs. But, it, you know, and I think that's sort of a patient-based and institutional-based discussion to figure out who those are. I mean, here, is there anyone you won't do these for? Are there contraindications that our listeners should be aware of where you wouldn't want them to get the enzymatic therapy? You know, I think bleeding is what I worry about the most, right? Because, you know, you're giving TPA into the pleural space. And, you know, and I think, you know, while, while there's not um, a huge concern about systemic absorption of the TPA or systemic bleeding from pleural administration, there, there certainly is a risk for interpleural hemorrhage um, from that. And so, 
you know, I, I tend to be fairly cautious in patients who are coagulopathic, either because of they're on anticoagulation, anticoagulation or they're coagulopathic for some other reason. And in those patients, I may, you know, be reluctant to give them full dose enzymatic therapy. I could maybe consider half a dose uh, uh, of, of the TPA instead of the traditional 10 milligrams, give them five milligrams and, and see how they do as a test dose. You know, that the, the data aren't great to, to, to tell us, and DFK, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think, you know, generally it, the data will suggest it's safe. You know, the, the MIS-2 studies, there were two episodes of intrapleural hemorrhage, but those two just happened to be in the patients getting the combination enzymatic therapy, which, which gives you a little bit of pause. And so, um, and so I, I tend to be a little cautious about that, but uh, I'd be curious to hear what DFK's sort of practices or, or thoughts are on the data. Yeah, but here I, I agree in full with you. I, I quote, you know, first of all, this is a quote unquote procedure. Um, it's something that you should be getting consent for, and it has a CPT code associated with it, so it's a billable procedure. Um, but as with all procedures, you weigh risks and benefits. So I do quote a 2% risk of um, bleeding requiring transfusion. Um, it could be higher than that of a small drop in hemoglobin. Um, but if patients are coagulopathic, I try to correct the coagulopathy. If patients are on systemic antiplatelet agents, we try to hold that if possible. But again, you usually can't. So then the question is, can what else can you do? And there is a nice paper by Claire Hooper in the ERJ in 2015 looking at saline irrigation as the PIT protocol. So they just put in 250 mLs of saline TID and had both the radiographic improvement as well as a decreased need for surgery. So uh, we'll, we'll look at that. Yeah, so I mean, it seems like there's some probably some institutional variation on, you know, who's instilling the interpleural therapies and the duration, but it seems like maybe 72 hours or three days may be the standard at some places. Um, and DFK, you talked about this already. You know, I think the next step, right, if these aren't working, then, you know, seems like surgery's next. And you said that there, you know, some patients that you see may require earlier surgical consultation than others, but when you're considering calling, you know, thoracic surgery colleagues, what procedures would they exactly be doing? Like for those for those listeners that may not be familiar with decortication or thoracoscopy, can you describe that a little bit more broadly? Sure. I would also point out that when you look at the trials and especially the future trials that are being done in this space, the pleural space, it's important to distinguish endpoints. So a lot of the prior trials used need for surgery as an endpoint. And just like we were talking about incremental invasiveness of a eight French Dora catheter versus a 14 French pigtail, I think there's very limited incremental invasiveness going from a 14 French ping, pigtail to a single or double port video assisted thoracoscopic surgery. The surgery that you want to avoid is a thoracotomy. That's a big surgery. Uh, but, you know, a, a one or two port thoracoscopy is not that much more invasive than a pigtail necessarily. There was actually a really nice study out of BI. Uh, CARE was the first author looking at medical thoracoscopy. It was a small randomized trial and medical thoracoscopy with sort of adhesional lysis where they just broke down adhesions. They didn't even do a decortication, which is taking off that thick visceral pleural peel. That led to a shorter length of stay a uh, shorter hospital stay, and no difference in treatment failures. Um, so I think it really depends on what's your individual setting and your individual patient. Do you have a multidisciplinary pearl disease service, which I think is the holy grail, 
where you can just call up your surgeon and discuss cases in a multidisciplinary way, just like we do for hepatic hydrothorax or anything else. I, I think it depends on your practice setting. The thing to avoid, though, is thoracotomy. That, that's a much bigger surgery. And so the MIS-3 trial, we, we mentioned MIS-1 and MIS-2, MIS-3 is actually an RCT between standard of care, enzymatic therapy, and early BATS. So hopefully that's going to give us the answer for which is the best. And I know we're reaching our time together today, but DFK and Mahir, I just want to ask if there's other big pearls or teaching points that you want to get across today. I would only highlight how common this is. Um, we didn't talk a lot about it, but it, you know, I, on the IP service, the BI, that's like, you know, it's the bane of the IP fellows existence, but because, <laughs> because it just happens a lot. And I think, you know, I think having a high sort of, uh, pretest probability and being sort of cognizant and aware of the high incidence of this is important for, for people when they're taking care of patients with pneumonias on the floor to not miss an infusion and just, you know, the IP fellows will hate me for saying this, but feel free to call us whenever you see an infusion because they may need to be drained urgently. I can't overemphasize that enough. Um, patients look really good. You're looking at them and say, oh, this patient's got a, you know, community acquired pneumonia. You don't know what that fluid's like until you take it out. And I have two classic pictures that I always show in my uh, pleural infection talks where one, the fluid is green because it was a fungal lymphoma, and the other where it was like nasty brown from a TB lymphoma, and they look fine. You gotta sample the fluid. I love it. Always, always should be going after it. I do feel like there's always this thing of being like, oh, do we really want to do it? It's so small. It's like, eh, just do it. Grab a needle. We can get it, right? And we'll, we'll have an answer afterwards. Well, this is awesome. This has been super fantastic. I feel like it's a great overview of the options. And we've gotten into a lot of detail about the diagnostics and the therapeutics um, about our paranormonic fusion, simple, complicated, and MPEMA. Uh, we always like to wrap up with a, a take learning or takeaway point. You guys already just gave us a great point about making sure we sample the fluid and having a, a sort of a low bar for suspecting this, given that it's pretty common. Uh, we'll, we'll all add one more just so our listeners have a, a good one. If they're just fast forwarding to the very end. I'm just going to highlight two small points. I don't think they're the main takeaways, but I just really like them. I love the three test rule that you mentioned here. I don't think we talked about that in our last episode. And I feel like it is important to know that there are other tools out there besides lights criteria that we can use. Not that we love lights criteria, but there are other things we can use uh, to evaluate our fusions. And then Dave, just sort of always going back to basics, you didn't let us skip through like you gotta have the right antibiotics first, right? You know, we can talk about this all day, but if you're not thinking about the organism that the patient has and what what to be treating them with, you'll, you're just gonna be chasing your own tail. So those are mine too. Monte, what do you got? Thanks, Murph. And I gave two. And I think I like Mahir's point about bringing up using TPA and Dornase and referring to it as intrapleural enzymatic therapy, I think is definitely something that I am taking away. And also from DFK, I just think the utility of using uh, blood culture bottles to send plural culture data at the bedside can increase the yield by up to 20%. DFK, any pearls or takeaway points that our listeners should take? Yeah, I would say plural disease is a team sport. Work with, with your IR and thoracic surgical colleagues. It's ideal if you have a multidisciplinary plural disease service, it's going to improve patient care, it's going to improve education for everybody involved and improve the research that we're doing to you know, again, circle back and improve the care of our patients. That's great. And Mahir, I think we'll wrap up with you. 
Sure. You know, I, I think we've had a, a series of cases here which have been somewhat protracted. So I think, you know, really giving patients good expectations about what's coming their way because, you know, sometimes these can be really tricky to treat and they can require multiple interventions, multiple chest tubes, you know, with or without surgery. And so making sure you're communicating with, with the patients about, you know, what the rationale is and, and what's coming in the next hour, day, week is really helpful for them to sort of set a sense of what's coming. Oh, that's such a good one. I feel like we've all had those cases where it just keeps going on and on. And they're always so surprised. Like, how did I get this? How did this happen? Well, I feel much more prepared now. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure having you on. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, tune in in two weeks for our next episode. This uh, episode was written and produced by myself and Christina Montemayor and the music's original music by Eric Rogers. Uh, we'll see you next time.